Well, it's probably a no-brainer that, that motherhood is important. Whenever you get in the middle of it, it's easy to lose track of just how important it is. It's easy to lose track of seeing it as it's an opportunity given by God. Somewhere between the diapers and the trips for Travel League and the arguments over the cell phone, it's easy to forget how valuable of a work that you're doing, you're witnessing, you're, you're, you're being a part of, and, and forget the significance of the, of the kingdom. I think that's true for anything. But for things that are, that are daily and are routine and sometimes seemingly mundane, I think that is a great, uh, a great pitfall. It's very easy for things that you do day after day after day. We can get real excited and get up for the, you know, the great event, whatever it is, the five magical times that we have every year. We get really excited about those, but the day in and the day out, it's easy to lose track of the significance. So this morning I want to remind you now, we're going to go to three different passages of Scripture this morning, and I want to give you three reasons to thank God for motherhood today. Three reasons to thank God for motherhood. Thank God for your mother, and thank God you are a mother, because mothers give praiseworthy counsel. They have a powerful influence and they possess a promising witness. Open your Bibles to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. PJ mentioned it in his commentary before the reading of Scripture this morning. I think the first reason, you could go, you could add to this list, you could go any number of places. But I really think Proverbs 31 is probably one of the best places to go to to illustrate this point, the first reason to thank God for motherhood is mothers give praiseworthy counsel. It's a familiar passage. Who hasn't heard, if you're a Christian lady, the Proverbs 31 woman? It's where everybody goes because it's a large section of text that has to do with being a godly woman. It's very familiar because it describes an excellent wife. But as PJ pointed out, there's something very significant about the passage. The passage actually records the gift of godly advice that a a mother gives her son. Look at verse 1. The words of of King Lemuel, the, the utterance which his mother taught him. And then it begins to record it. A Hebrew tradition says that this is Solomon. This is Solomon's mother, the wisest man that ever lived. They're his words, but they're recorded advice and encouragement given by his mother. And ladies, I want you to notice two things. Take note of two things. Number one, these are the recorded words of a woman. So you can't say, which I know you never would because it's the Word of God, Holy Spirit inspired it. But you can't say that this is the words of a man who couldn't understand. This is the words of a woman who understands your heart and your life. And secondly, there's the words of a mother who loves her son and wants what's best for him. So what would a mother communicate? What would a mother communicate? As I said at at Annie James' funeral, 
with 31 verses, a very limited number, to a man who has tremendous influence. It's going to be a king. And whether she knew it or not, it was going to be inscripturated. So we're sitting here today in 2014 reading the words. If, if his mother knew the significance of what would be would be written and how far it would go, what would she communicate? What advice would, would she give? And here is some praiseworthy counsel. Look at verse 2. She begins the words, What, my son, what son of my womb, what son of my vows? Three repetitions that indicates passion. It's like holy, holy, holy. It's my son, son of my womb, son of my vows. I'm... This is, this is a mother saying, I'm getting ready to pour out my heart to you. I'm getting ready to give you counsel. She's passionate about what she's saying. And what comes next is praiseworthy advice she gives her son. And there are really, there are only four topics here. She tells him, number one, don't involve yourself in immorality. Stay pure. Verse three, don't give your strength to women nor your ways to that which destroys kings. She's referencing immorality here. Take care. Don't fall to immorality, number one. Number two is found in verse four. Intemperance. It's not for kings, old Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert justice of all the afflicted. It's the second piece of advice. Look at the third piece of advice. It's found in verse 8. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die, someone condemned to death. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Plead the cause of the poor and needy. Okay? So verse 8, it's the speechless. It's the one who doesn't have a voice. You have a voice. When you have a voice and someone else doesn't, and you can speak on their behalf, and you need to open your mouth for the innocent, for the speechless. Do the same thing for those who are appointed to die. As you're a judge and you're in a position of authority, people condemned to death, you have the ability to, to do something about that. They don't. At that point, a condemned person has, has no authority, no power, no right. 9, verse 9, open your mouth, judge righteously, plead the cause of the poor and the needy. The poor doesn't have a voice and neither does the, the needy. She's saying protect the weak. Care for those who can't care for themselves. Stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And number 4, which is what the chapter is known for, make sure you find a good woman. Choose a good wife. Immorality, intemperance, standing up for the weak, and find a godly woman. Pretty good advice, isn't it? As I said in the funeral, I can totally see why the Bible's not taught in school any longer. It's so harmful to children. This type of advice is just such horrible things to tell to a child. Keep yourself pure, stay away from alcohol, protect the weak, and choose a Good mate. That's such horrible, horrible counsel, isn't it? This was the advice of a mother to a son. Now, if you look at 31 verses, 
The first one's the introduction. You've got two verses dedicated to the immorality, four verses dedicated to drinking, two verses on injustice, and 22 verses on what a godly woman looks like. 70% of the chapter is about choosing a good wife. Counsel from a mother to a son about who that son would marry. Now, either this was a really dense boy when it came to girls, or that takes pretty important, isn't it? I think it's the majority, not because those other three are unimportant. I mean, obviously, immorality, intemperance, standing up for the weak, for the poor, the needy, is not unimportant. I think this is the majority because this mother knows that whoever the son picks will likely be a mother one day and influence generations. And so it's vital. Ladies, your counsel is not forgotten. You may think it falls on deaf ears. I understand that whenever you speak to your children, you get the eye roll sometimes. You, you get the, the look where they're just kind of staring through you and they're just waiting till you get done. I understand that. I've done it, unfortunately. Your children, even your husband, may look like they're not listening, but, but there's a reason we have practical sayings that are attributed to mothers. Your mama said if you run with dogs, you'll get fleas. You heard that before? Can you think of some other proverbial sayings that are attributed to mothers, the counsel of mothers. It's ingrained in us because we listen to that counsel. What's the most memorable line in Forrest Gump? Mama said, that's how it starts, right? Have you ever seen them stick a camera in somebody's face on the sideline of a football game? Who do they say? Hi, Dad! Is that what you hear them saying? Hi, Mom. Did anybody watch the NFL draft the other night? Did you see how many parents were, were brought to the NFL draft? Did you see how many of them were fathers? Almost every single one of them were, were mothers. It's memorable. These things are memorable. We give praise to mothers because the counsel that mothers give is, is valuable. I can still remember a lot of the counsel that my mother gave me. You can see it served me well in the kind of woman to look for, even if I didn't know what I was looking for then. What counsel, what praiseworthy counsel are you giving your, your children? What advice, if you stand back and look at your life, ladies, what advice does your life and your words, what are they communicating to your children as far as what is important, what to pursue? If you had 31 verses and you had to come up with only four things, what would those four things be? Would they be what's on the list here? Now look at your life and say, if my life only communicates four things, what are the four things that, that my life communicates? What counsel am I giving? Your child may wield a tremendous amount of influence one day. Your child will surely influence others one day. And they will influence whoever they influence based upon the counsel that, that you have given them. 
Now, I understand whenever you, you, you read a passage like this, some of you may be sitting there thinking how your counsel or maybe even your life hasn't been the best. I can relate, not coming to Christ till I was 24. Maybe you didn't come to Christ until later in life. Maybe your children were grown a little or a lot. Maybe it wasn't a while before the Lord got a hold of your heart. Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes. Maybe you need to even make a change even all the way up till today. So it begs the question, can God still use you? Is it till too late to make a difference? As you read Proverbs 31, one of the, one of the arguments I typically hear that it's like, you know, Proverbs 31 for a woman is it's just not really encouraging to me because as a woman, when I go to Proverbs 31, I look at it and I go, man, I can't do all this. I mean, I can't weave and, you know, chase merchant ships and be up all hours. That's not an encouragement to me. And you hear all of the standards and the, the, the encouragements in the Bible whether you're a man or a woman, a husband, a wife, a mother or a father, you find yourself coming up very short, don't you, whenever you look at it? What if you find yourself coming up short in this area of, of counsel? Can God still use you? Well, let me just ask you a question. Who was Solomon's mother? Who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. The wisest man who ever lived, who wrote Proverbs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, came from a relationship launched by adultery. Can God use you after you've messed up? You better believe He can. Don't tell me you can't make a difference. Don't tell me you can't start today. Don't tell me there's too much water under the dam. Don't tell me that God can't use you anymore. He can't correct anything in your life because I could take you to passage after passage after passage and show you if you get your heart right with the Lord and turn in the right direction, God can and will use you in a great way. That's the first reason. Let me give you the second reason to give thanks. It's mothers have a powerful influence. Turn over to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Mothers have a powerful influence. Mothers give praiseworthy counsel. You remember the counsel of your, of your mother, good or bad. Mothers have a powerful influence. Give thanks if you have one. Give thanks if you are one. This is the grace of God to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This point of influence is is tucked away in an obscure verse that people usually don't understand or or just completely overlook. God reveals powerful influence of a mother. If you would, at verse 13. Now, I understand when I start reading, I'm reading in the middle and I'll show you what the significance is. It starts with the little word for, which means it's an explanation of something that came before. Verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, and here's the powerful influence, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. 
Now, watch in this verse how, how Paul goes from before the fall to mother's influence after the fall. Look at verse 13. For Adam was first formed in Eve. That's before the fall. It's in creation. You see that? For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and now he moves to the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There's the fall, and here's after the fall in verse 15. Nevertheless, even after the fall, here is the amazing influence. She will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So you have before the fall, the fall, how the fall took place, and you have after the fall, and you have motherhood right in the midst of of that. And it's describing the powerful influence after the fall. God's beautiful design, its perfection is rooted in creation. And, and this verse 13 is a, is a reason for Paul giving some prior commands. Look back at verse 11. Here's the command, and here's what verse 13 explains. Let the women learn. In silence with all subjection, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, over a man, but be in silence. Starts here with a command in verse eleven: Women are to be given equal access to the Word of God in the church. Let the women learn. Women are not second-class citizens in the church. They are to learn the Word of God, just like men are to learn the the Word of of God. They're not to sit in the balcony of the synagogue, they're to sit on the floor of the synagogue like everyone else. Let the women learn. It's an imperative command. But they're to do so in a way that doesn't violate God's perfect design. So he explains it in silence with all submission. And verse 12 just explains what he means by silence and submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in, in silence. They're to learn. They're to have equal access to the Word of God. They're to inculcate the Word of God. They're to grow in Christ just like any other person. But they're to do so in a way that doesn't, design, doesn't violate God's perfect creation. A woman is not to be in a primary teaching position in the church because that would violate the order of creation and she should not be in authority over a man. In silence is equated in verse 12 with not teach. That's what he means by silence. They're not to teach. It doesn't mean that a woman can't. When she walks in the church doors, she has to be completely silent and never speak a word or utter a word before she leaves. It means she's not to be in the primary teaching position in the church. She's not to be a teaching elder in the church. In with all submission, in verse 11, he defines specifically what he means by that. In verse 12, she is not to be in the position of authority over a man. Does it mean that she can't have any position in the church? It's specific to... A man. And now he gives the reason. Verse 13, because it's rooted in creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. God chose to create a divine design. He chose to create Adam first and then, and then Eve. Some have joked that he created Adam first and said, man, I've got to try this again. So he created Eve. But you can't get around the fact that Here is the created order. The beautiful design, its perfection is rooted in creation. 
Paul refers back to creation and the order. Jesus does the same thing when he's questioned by the Sadducees and concerning divorce. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and a literal Eve. Listen to verse uh, Matthew 19. He, that Jesus, answered them, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There's the, the creation and the order. And He said, For this cause shall man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This would be a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, I mean... I was there, I understand that whole Adam and Eve thing. I mean, that was all just illustrative. Those weren't real people. Just that you get the concept that God... It's not what Jesus says. He bases the law of God, the instructions, the understanding of the law on creation as if it's literal and Adam is literal and Eve is literal and from that you get the things that God has created on the earth, one of which is marriage and how... Marriage is supposed to, to look. And just as a side note, Jesus didn't just affirm literal Adam and Eve. He affirmed Noah and the flood, Jonah and the great fish. Matthew 24, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking before the flood came. Until the day that Noah entered the ark, they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And my point to that is you might as well chuck the whole thing if you don't believe in the garden. It's all or nothing. Paul here believes the authority of Scripture, and he establishes creation order as a basis for life in the home and the church, and then he moves from creation to the fall. Look at verse 14. Here's the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, when you read that, it sounds like he's overly emphasizing how horrible Eve was. I mean, here is this wise Adam, and here's this really dumb woman, Eve, who fell into transgression, right? That's not what he's emphasizing. He is distinguishing her role in the fall from Adam. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, you, you can't sugarcoat that. That's exactly what happened. But it says something about Adam as much as it does about Eve. He's distinguishing her role in the fall from Adam, which is why she should not be in a position to teach or ruling in the church. He is saying Eve did what Eve did in the fall... And the results of the fall actually substantiates God's perfect design. Because when she violated it, assumed leadership, she fell and the whole human race followed. And no matter how bad you feel for her, you can't, you can't, you can't change that. What Eve did was bad. It was really bad. But Paul's point is that Eve was deceived, which means Adam was not. And Adam wasn't innocent, was he? Listen to Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to his eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took from it and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her. 
and he ate. Eve, Adam was not deceived. He chose willfully, knowingly. But the woman being deceived, she fell into transgression. Adam was there. It wasn't like he was over in the next orchard obediently, you know, tending to God's garden and along comes Eve who enticed him to do the wrong thing. Now here's where the exciting part comes. Look at verse 15. Nevertheless. Boy, that's a a bad stigma. Perfect design. Perfect creation. Plunged into the fall. Nevertheless. Don't you love those words in the Bible where it says, but God? Here's a but God in the fall. Nevertheless. Even though the fall is bad and even though it happened. Nevertheless. Just as God has given men the opportunity after the fall to recover the glory of God in displaying Christ in His church through leading and loving their wives when Adam failed to lead and love his wife, so God has given women the opportunity to reverse the fact that they were influenced through influence. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. And what does that mean? Does that mean that only mothers are going to go to heaven? No. Does that mean if you are a mother, you automatically go to heaven? Well, I might vote for that, but that's not what it means. It's not talking about getting into heaven by having babies. The word means to be delivered or preserved. Nevertheless, she will be preserved or delivered through childbearing if they continue. Notice, he moves from Eve to they, plural. They, if they, that's all women. He's saying, as Eve bore the stigma of being the one who led the human race into sin by being deceived, her sisters can reverse that by raising a godly generation of children. You see the connection? Eve was influenced unto ungodliness. Now, mothers have the opportunity to influence their children toward godliness if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. As the devil deceived her... Her children, being all women after her, can lead others in truth. You know how important motherhood is? You have a little life, a little mind that you have a powerful influence over. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, as they say, speaking of a mother's influence. Mothers spend far more time with their children than fathers do. For the most part, they have a great amount of influence. They carry them for nine months. The bond that's created between a mother and a child is not the same bond between a father. And only a mother knows and God recognizes the power of motherhood there. If... It's both a promise and a warning, isn't it? It's a promise. If and if not, it can be negative influence. Let me give you the last one in closing. 
praiseworthy counsel. Mothers have a powerful influence. Post-fall, the powerful influence. When you have the opportunity to exhibit. And then finally, mothers possess a promising witness. Turn over to 2 Timothy. The last letter of the Apostle Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, starting the way that he normally does, giving thanks for the work of God in Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. He's thanking God. As without ceasing, I remember you, that's Timothy, in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you. Oh, it would be wonderful to see you, Timothy. Being mindful of your tears, your sincerity, that I may be filled with joy and look at verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Oh, Timothy, you are a man of God. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a genuine faith, a sincere faith. It's not a false faith. It's, it's unhypocritical faith, literally. That's what it means. It's unhypocritical. It's not diluted. It's the real deal. And I'm filled with joy when I think about that, Timothy. This same faith... Look at the verse again, 5, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. Now watch what he does here. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. And then look at how he ends that. I am persuaded in you also. Book ends here. He's talking about, about Timothy's genuine faith. And he explains how it got there, or who Paul attributed that faith to. The witness was first in grandmother and then in mother, and now you also. You see the connection there? Three generations. Three generations of following after Yahweh. And while counsel is important, I hope you give good counsel. Raising good, responsible children is vital. It will come back to haunt you if you don't because they're going to take care of you one day or not. (laughs) And while that is vital, nothing matters more. And you know what I'm getting ready to say if you're a mother. Nothing matters more than whether your children come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And you're going to do things that will encourage that. And you're going to do things that you're going to say, thank God for the grace of God that, that accomplishes His purposes even above my failures. You'll say that in any life, but that's your heartbeat. And while you can't make them believe, you can have a promising witness. They'll see Christ in you. They'll see the promise of the gospel in you. They'll see whether the gospel is truly worthy to live by or not. 
or whether it's just something that you, you just kind of say and then do on Sunday. They'll see the promise of the gospel in you. Paul's emphasis here is that Timothy saw the promise of the gospel in his mother and then in his grandmother. I didn't look up the statistics, but Pastor Jeff quoted last week, or at some point, I forget, the last few weeks, about the number of children that have their mother as a Christ follower, the percentage of them who actually follow in the faith. What a legacy here. What a witness. You know, I was thinking about the, the, the witness of a mother, and I know that God's promise to Ishmael came because of His promise to Abraham. But do you remember who God appeared to and who He spoke to? Hagar in the wilderness? You remember the prostitute that came before Solomon when Solomon got to test whether he took his mother's advice? And the divided baby, do you remember how even a prostitute loved her child? Now let's take Solomon for an example. Will you do everything right? Will they listen to everything that you do? Solomon got counsel of what kind of godly woman to pick, and I guess he assumed that there wasn't any limit on how many number of them that he could pick, right? Your children won't always follow your counsel, but that doesn't change the fact that you give them counsel. They might not always take your influence, but that doesn't change the fact that you influence them. And you can't force them to believe, but you need to be a promising witness for the gospel because that is a powerful, powerful thing. Ladies, if you're a mother, you're the mother to your child. No one else will be. And you're a witness to them first and foremost. They'll see you pray and pray as well. They'll see you read God's Word and read God's Word in the same way. They'll see how important Christ is to you and He will be as important to them. How you follow Him in your daily life so they will follow. You're a witness. And that witness is... It's full of promise. So don't forget these things in the midst of it all. Don't listen to the noise of the world that says it's really not that important. It's vital for life, godliness, for the kingdom. And the Lord calls you to the task. And anything He calls you to do, He'll give you the power and the ability and the grace cover over whenever you mess up and surely you will but he gives grace to the humble doesn't he so you say Lord help I believe help my unbelief Lord I want to make up what I lack and he will 